This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This program may contain explicit language. Also, we have a newsletter coming out. It's at slate.com slash gist news. Now on with the possibly filthy show. It's Thursday, May 9th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Denver is considering legalizing psychedelic mushrooms. So stick that in your pipe and smoke it. Squares. No, wait, that is definitely not how it works. Well, the squares actually did have some objections, as NPR reports. Denver is the first city in the country to effectively remove the threat of criminal penalty for magic mushrooms. Conservative groups say the measure will push Denver closer to becoming the illicit drug capital of the world. Proponents are wrong, demonstrably wrong. They will not become the illicit drug capital of the world, specifically because these drugs will no longer be illicit. That is the point of legalizing the drugs. Guys, opponents, you are supposed to be the ones who are not on drugs. You could do better with this. That is not how the word illicit works. And now we focus on what fear means and how fearing something works with the following sentence from the Wall Street Journal. It's about the requirement, the new requirement, that pharmaceutical companies disclose the prices of their drugs in their TV ads. The Wall Street Journal writes, the Trump administration completed a rule requiring drug makers to include list prices for most drugs in television ads. Drug makers opposed the rule, fearing the mandate could mislead consumers. Guess what, guys? If you have that fear, why don't you, as the entities who are airing the commercials, making the commercials, writing the commercials, producing the commercials, why don't you make sure they're not misleading? We're so very worried that we might lie in these ads that we pay for. I mean, with the very words that we are in charge of crafting and paying for, we're quite worried, nay, we're fearful that those words will mislead you. Then don't mislead us and don't fear that you will mislead us because that's not how fearing really works. Last one is about how losses work. This is the biggest story of the last couple of days that Donald Trump had a staggering amount of business losses, a billion dollars over a 10-year period. Only that is not how losses work. In an excellent article in New York Magazine, Josh Barrow points out that to have lost a billion dollars, you had to have had a billion dollars, and Trump never had that billion dollars in the first place. He may have wound up owing a billion dollars, but that's probably true only on paper. And that wasn't a secret. Trump used to brag about how he was in the Guinness Book of World Records, which is like the Wharton School of Finance for world records. He used to brag that he was listed there as having made the greatest financial comeback of all time. This was in the mid-80s to mid-90s. That was when he was in the trough. And that was when Ivanka Trump was interviewed for the HBO documentary Born Rich. Here's what she said. Well, I remember once my father and I were walking down Fifth Avenue and there was a homeless person sitting, um, sitting right outside of Trump Tower. And I think I was probably maybe nine, 
nine, ten, something like this. It was around the same time as the divorce. And I remember my father pointing to him and saying, you know, that guy has eight billion dollars more than me because he was in such extreme debt at that point, you know? And, um, and me thinking, what are you, you know, what are you talking about? He's, he was sitting outside of Trump Tower and I'm looking and I'm going, you know, and I didn't understand and sort of, and I think I just thought about it maybe like a year or two ago and I, you know, I found it interesting. You know, it makes me all the more proud of my parents. They got through that. Okay, so this latest report, which was great reporting, and I'm glad we know, we got some more details about how Mr. Art of the Deal was somewhat, shall we say, artful in remembering his deals. But what it really does is just add a lot of good specificity to that which was generally known. And the shame of it is, even though that is not how losses work, it just might be how the tax code worked. I mean, he could have been cheating also. But I I do have to wonder, what's the bigger scandal? Trump cheating on his taxes or this massive paper depreciation not being a cheat at all? What is the bigger scandal? I will answer that as babies in cages. That was the worst one. On the show today, I spiel about everything I couldn't spiel about over the last five years. It is rapid, beat the clock, eclectic spiel. It's eclectic. But first... About a week ago, I went to a hotel room in Midtown Manhattan. I don't leave this studio for just anyone, but I'll do it for the guys who directed the second top-grossing movie of all time, Avengers Endgame. The Russo brothers are also behind the fifth top-grossing movie of all time, Avengers Infinity War. I'm not bowled over by money. But, you know, there was these movies said a lot, and we, the Russo brothers and I, said a lot in this conversation that I'm going to play for you now, right after this listener voicemail, of course. Hey, Mike, this is Michael Martin. I've been listening for a while. Previous Lobstar winner, no big deal. Uh, anyways, I have a time that you changed my mind. You used to have an ad that you do for light beer, uh, and you said it was the perfect for after a workout. Uh, I was pretty incredulous, but I gave it a try. Uh, and to tell you the truth, it blew my mind. Uh, something about the combination of the cold, the carbs, the electrolytes and the buzz really makes for a refreshing after-workout treat, I have to uh, I have to admit. Uh, so anyway, that's a time that you changed my mind. Congrats on the five years of the gist. Uh, definitely looking forward to five more. Bye. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So I think in this interview, I want to start off with the deeply esoteric and then get into the picayune. But, you know, we may go anywhere. That sounds fun. All right. So here's my first question. It's a truism in the literal sense of the word that your characters are gods or godlike or in case in Thor's case, an actual god. And they have superpowers, but they have foibles and flaws. But, you know, one purpose of the gods was to teach us things. Is that, is that going on in these movies on any level? That the, uh, we, the mortals, can learn either some lessons or see... Uh, reality reflected back through them? Well, this is uh, yeah. a modern mythology. Yeah, and I think like with the Greek gods, I do think, I mean, part part of the charm of the Greek gods is that they had very, very human uh, 
fallibilities yes. to them. So, and I, I think the same thing is true with these characters. I think the, the reason we love them, yeah, certainly part of it has to do with their remarkable power, but I think really how we identify with them and feel, feel, feel close to them is through their vulnerabilities. And that's the thing that Joe and I have always most wanted to explore since we first came to the MCU with Captain America Winter Soldier is like the human vulnerable side of these characters. And I think that that's where we get our most empathy with them. Do you think that pop culture has gotten more deep lately because it was always available. Pop culture could always be as deep. It's just that the creators of pop culture didn't realize that the audience was up to it. Or do you think that over the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years, the audience had to be trained and to get more up to speed to be challenged more? Let me give you an example. You guys did this show, Community, which has layers and layers of jokes and is tremendous and works like every, one scene can have three or four jokes going on at the same time. If you compare it to Mary Tyler Moore, which I consider maybe the greatest sitcom of all time, it's a lot easier to understand. It's brilliant on an emotional level, but just the density, I guess that's what I'm getting at. The density of the material in 2010 through 2019 is so much more dense than it's ever been in pop culture. So that is my question to go back. Do you think uh, we were always ready to do it and you know the gatekeepers of pop culture didn't allow it or do you think audiences are in a different place than maybe I, when I we think were audiences are in a different place. I, I, think, I think it think, might be yeah. because people access media differently than they used to when we were watching Mary Tyler Moore, right? I mean, look at the, the, the amount of... Uh, media that we have available to ourselves. Everyone has a PhD in content consumption now, and that's, it's no joke. But from I mean, a reputable university? Yeah, thousands of hours of <laughs> content of consumption. Life. I mean, remember we used to have appointment viewing and TV used to shut off at you know one in the morning and you couldn't get it until you know the next day at five or six a.m. So you know there was a, there was a limited exposure to content. You, to see a movie, you had to get in your car and drive to the theater and go through the experience of seeing it in the theater. And movies didn't come out as often. And, you know, so this is, is we're, we're in a whole different, uh, you're constantly uh, consuming. And I think that does two things. One is it makes everyone very sophisticated in terms of their understanding of narrative. So you can pack more information in. Uh, I think that's why content has gotten a lot more dense. Uh, two, social media and the internet, there's a lot of positives, there's a lot of negatives to it. One of the positives is that people actually educate each other. Mm -hmm. And through message boards and conversations, they they will discover layers that they didn't, you know, that someone else did. And I think that that discovery is a huge part of what makes these movies successful. That said, there's a phrase that I think I've heard more in the last two months than I've ever heard in my life, which is fan service. And apparently this means pandering. I guess it means pandering. Does that phrase ever escape your lips and in, in what in what I mean, context? We don't, we've yeah. never used the phrase, we don't sit in the yeah. room. although we have yeah. read it quite a bit, like uh -huh. you say. What do you think of it? I mean, I just think that it's a reductionist way for people to say, oh, uh, you know, I, I don't participate uh, or care about uh, the characters in this uh, in this Marvel Cinematic Universe, so everything's fan service to me. But yeah. it, it, of course it is, because you're, you're not engaged in any way. I don't know, but I think people use it, different people use the term in different ways. Mm -hmm. You know, it can, I think some people you may use it pejoratively, but other people use it as, as a way, uh, like uh, it's almost a, a form of gratitude in the sense that like this connected with me, mm -hmm. you know, as a fan. Um, so I guess I think it depends on how you're using it. If you, in, in editing, when I do audio editing, there's a visual component of that. And you could see levels spike and rise. And if I was editing a song, you could see the slow parts and the fast parts. There's probably, I know that when you do the audio for your movie, you get, you get that. But if there was a way to sort of, 
in a visual sense, uh, document the tone and beats of the movies. Do you think this last one, do you think Endgame is like any kind of music that's out there? Does it totally resemble, I don't know, a grunge rock song or a symphony or something with slowness at first and then a build and crescendo? Well, it's, it's, it's a bit a like question. Bolero, I guess. It's mm-hmm. just slowly building over the course of the movie. But Bolero's repetitive and this yeah. changes. Yeah, it, it, but it gets to a climax, right? Yes. It's basically Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh-huh. There you go. You think? That's a good. That's a good shape. I mean, I think I think that it has a lot of different movements l- yes. like that song does, you know. It is hard to cor- correlate it precisely to, right. to music. It's an amazing question, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know where it, it, that would take a long time to think about the answer to this question. But the structure was very contemplative for the film. I mean, we like we thought a lot about the structure. Yeah. We wanted to own what had happened at the end of the last movie. Then Paul Rudd shows up. And Paul Rudd is a character who has a very unique tone in the Marvel universe. Starts to bring that, and he was disconnected from the events because right. he wasn't there for them. He slowly starts to alter the energy, right? You know, once people are available and they're laughing, they become very. When people are are entertained and smiling and and, and laughing together in a the theater, they're more emotionally connected to the material. They're available to you when something dramatic happens, and I think that you know, it's the right shape uh, for this movie. Oh, uh, Ant Man. It also seems that he plays the role of, in a sense, the audience surrogate, in that he has no superpowers, he's confused by what happens, and then he has to react to it afterwards. Is there, there is someone uh, who's kind of making sure the trains run on time and the trains don't run into each other at Marvel, right? Uh-huh. So oh, yeah, that, yeah someone who's in charge of the whole uh, gestalt of what all the movies are doing. That said, could you kill anyone you wanted and just figure that look, we all know Black Panther is going to come back and have a sequel. That movie made a lot of money. But could you have killed Black Panther if you wanted to and let them figure it out? Ke- well, here's the thing. Ke- yeah, that's one of the genius things of Kevin Feige in terms of how he runs Marvel. He's the guy. Yeah, yeah he gives you <laughs> complete freedom to decide where you want to go. Now, Joe and I probably, like, and, and with Marcus McFeely, the writers in, in collaboration, with Kevin in collaboration, you know, we're probably not going to make a decision to say kill Black Panther because I don't know that character has sort of gotten to that moment in his arc yet. Right. Just on a narrative level. Right. Right. So, but there are characters who have arrived at that and that at that point in their arc. And that was really our job as we were figuring out Infinity War and Endgame, thinking to ourselves, what was the proper ending for each character? And regardless of whether it meant life or death or whatever, you know, what was the proper conclusion to, of the arc for every one of those original Avengers? When you took over, your first movie was Winter Soldier, That's right? right yeah. When you took over, were you handed such situations? Yeah, I mean, no. I mean, they, they were looking for a reinvention of Cap. And, yeah. You know, our big pitch walk, walking in was, look, I collected comics as a kid. They were mostly Marvel comics. So I love a lot of the characters that they're working with. Cap was not one of my favorite characters. And I found him, you know, two-dimensional and square. Rigid, and yeah. Rigid yeah. and moralistic yeah. and pedantic. And we said, look, if you want to reinvent him, you've got to deconstruct him. You have to go on a journey with this character. Let's take him from a patriot to an insurgent. Let's really get behind. Let's, let's put his identity as a super soldier in conflict with his identity as a human being. And let's see which one is going to win. And that's really the arc that we followed with him since that movie, which has been very fortunate for us is that because we've done these four movies, we've been able to carry, I think, the emotional spine of the Marvel Universe uh, uh, for the last uh, seven years. 
I was listening to earlier interviews where you were talking about Civil War and you were very, you constructed it and were very proud in one interview I heard, and you should be, that you did a focus group. And I think it was 15 people were on Captain <laughs> America's side and 15 people were on Iron Man's side. Yeah. But at the end of this movie, aren't you saying who was right? Well, uh, not at the end, in the beginning. The, doesn't Tony actually correctly articulate that he had the right answer to that question of civil liberties versus security? To well, an he, he, he says that in, in a moment of great duress. You know, yes. he's basically starving to death. He's been stuck in space. Right, right. He's, he's throwing whatever he can at Yeah, yeah. He, he's really upset in Saying that. Saying the most He was not yeah. wrong yeah. that there was a great threat coming and they needed to build a suit of armor around the world and, you know, what point do, uh, yeah, yeah, do civil liberties... Uh, Trump and no pun intended. Yeah. Uh, do, <laughs> do civil liberties uh, come before the government's uh, ability to uh, protect its citizens? Uh, I think what's interesting is that to some extent they had to go through this. Like, if, you know, th there was a sense of destiny to this. They had to go through it to win it. And in a way, both he and Cap were right, you know? All your movies, this is a great joy in the movies. If you want to get something out of it other than the great fighting and the humor and the special effects, they, I think, all have an argument at the center. That was pretty explicit. What would you say the argument at the center of this one was? At the center of this movie? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah we thought about it as like, do you really, can you control your own destiny? Was, yeah. It was an idea that we sort of thought is central to this movie and that, you know, what Thanos did was so overwhelming and conclusive, and conclusive. And it's like, how does a hero respond to that? How does a hero move forward from that? And are the actions that that hero takes can they actually change things? And you know, and there's an ambiguity in the answer. There is, I think, there is an affirmation that 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 you can change destiny, but at the same time, you can't always change it on your terms. Yeah. You know, you may have to sacrifice something to attain that mm -hmm. that you you don't want to. And the essential conflict, I think, is enunciated on a porch scene with uh, Tony and Cap when they're arguing about whether they should pursue this opportunity to go back in the past and get the stones. And Tony says, I got a kid now. Like, yeah. what, what, what is everyone who's supposed to do, who's advanced their lives over the last five years, maybe gotten married, children have come into the world, how do we, how do we not put that at risk if we go do this? Yeah. You know? and, uh, and then Cap makes the argument, well, you know, what do we owe to the people who are lost? We, we owe the, the effort to, to try to bring them back if we think we can. I think that, now I should tell you, on my show, I did a segment. I could do whatever I want on my show and sometimes I break format. I did a segment which was a fake newscast that occurred like three days after the events of this movie. Mm -hmm. oh, and so some awesome. of the things that happened are there were, the housing glut went to a huge housing right. shortage. The uh, air level in India for the first time in five years went to dangerous level. I started thinking about airplanes. You know, a quarter of all planes would probably have fallen out of the sky if right. both captains <laughs> died. But then half the people on the planes would come back and half who didn't get dustified would be dead now. Anyway, there are a lot of, lot of considerations. I'll ask you a few questions. We love that, by the way. Yeah, we spend time thinking about those things. The one that I saw you definitely address in the movie because you had to, and it was an interesting way to go, is the environmental aspect. Whales, uh, uh, just looking at bees and, and insects. Um, because, and that was also something explicitly Thanos uh, cited, you know, saving humanity by killing half of all life. But were there any other aspects you wanted to take a crack at about what would really happen if we undid well, this uh, whole thing after five years? I mean, one thing that we talked about a lot and I thought that was really profound, uh, it, but it was, uh, it, was, it was almost too large of an idea for us to wrangle 
but we did try for a while. It's just the idea again, like your math with who would have who would have died uh, in the in the airplanes. It's um, one quarter of all children have no parents. Right. If you you know if you if you assuming you started with two parents. Right. Right. So that that's a lot of global orphans. You know, yeah. just the staggering number of that. I believe one point early on in the script. Black Widow was, this is really early in development, Black Widow was actually leading like the, the organization in DC that was in charge of like orphans basically. That, yeah. was, her, that was what she was sort of heading up five years later. But, um, but yes, it's, it's kind of fascinating when you start running it down. There was no big scene that went beyond the characters that we knew of say, families reuniting on the large scale in New York City. Um, some of your other movies have had, you know, cutaway or some of the other Avengers movies we see like the rest of humanity hugging or whatever. Why? Why didn't you want to take it beyond I don't know, that? we always find, uh, when we get, when we see those scenes in movies, I just feel like I disconnect from them because I don't know those people. And uh, so we always trying to find a way to tell that story through the characters that we have and that we care about. We feel like that's more emotionally arresting it, is the, the characters that the audience has been yeah. following through this narrative, realizing the catharsis of that movement with those characters. And as uh, uh, directors, we'd rather direct a scene between Elizabeth Olsen and Jeremy Renner than with you know extra four and five. No, no, hug a little tighter. No, no, smile a little bigger. Uh, smile less, smile less. Uh. The other thing we like to think about too, but it was more on a, a joking level. I we never really uh, approached it as a, as a real dramatic issue, mm -hmm. but just simply like the, the the remarriages that may have happened during those five years. That was in my newscast. <laughs> Older brothers are now younger brothers. Yeah, yeah. Bro well, I was thinking five years is a really... That's kind of the hinge. I mean, you could have said four or six, but if it was 12 years later, I think that'd be a really good argument for just letting it stay because people have moved on. Right. Mm -hmm. And if it was yeah. five months later, there'd be really no debate. So I right. think it is kind of interesting to put it at that time. Well, and it's great too because it, you know we're, we're owning it moving forward. And yeah. uh, that's a really crazy narrative decision to own and it's going to make things really interesting and well, yeah. you know fresh and different because you're starting from a you know the place that the universe that these stories take place in is is a really odd one and we wanted it we wanted it to be far enough primarily what drove the choice was we wanted it to be far enough where our lead characters had reached a point of acceptance you right. know what i mean they had yeah. they had to just accept it as their reality yeah so you guys have a, a one for you, one for them type of thing going on with your movies? We, well, I mean, we it, learned that from Soderbergh and, yeah. and Clooney. I think we've, we've had four, you know, four for them, I guess, is uh, the way that- Well, that's a lot. It. You've built up a lot, of, uh, lot in the bank that you could do ones for you now. That, yeah, yeah, we did. We, we actually created our own studio and raised our, you know, a few hundred million dollars to run our studio. And that's a unique position for artists to be in. And, and, and I think it's, you know, it, it, it's-, it's the phrase is is very reductive, you know, mm -hmm. it, meaning that like certainly these movies were for us as well, you know what I mean? And certainly, uh, uh, but what they do, they what they do enable us to do is because we've serviced the business yeah. well with these movies, it allows us to indulge the business on on something else. So, what kind of movies are you going to be doing? Well, we, we have a really special movie coming up, and I think it's a good example of of what you're talking about. Uh, we have a movie called Cherry which is based on a novel by Nico Walker, came out a little over a year ago, I think. And it's a really wonderful novel slash memoir about a uh, army medic, decorated army medic who comes home from the Iraq war, gets diagnosed with PTSD, 
gets prescribed Oxycontin and develops an opioid addiction that turns into a heroin addiction that snowballs into a bank robbing uh, career to support his addiction. And it's just, it's a, it's, just a, it's, a, it's a really sensitive character study of someone who's in a bad place and that place just gets worse and worse and worse. And how does his humanity sort of prevail through that, through that experience? Anthony Russo, Joe Russo, thank you guys very much. It was a thank pleasure. You, thank was you, thank you. Really appreciate uh, it. Great talk, thanks. Hi, just a particularly memorable episode was um, when you did the uh, focus group between uh, Princess Leia and Jabba the Hutt. Okay, I'd like to thank you all for coming. I know the forest moon of Endor is not the easiest place for you to get to. No, of course, of course. Wookiees are excellent navigators. Didn't mean to malign your kind. The words Jabba is a businessman stick in my head all this time. Jabba says what other huts are afraid to say. I mean, he's a businessman. Well, his critics would say he's a gangster. That's just because... That's not fair. Hold on, hold on, one at a time. Thanks, bye. So over the last five years of gists, I've done a spiel just about every day. I've done over 1,200 gists. I would say I've done just under 1,200 spiels. Uh, I have had guest hosts, and some days I've given my spiel over to either an extended interview or an outside spieler. So today, here, right now, I aim to even the score to get the number of spiels even with the number of gists as I go on a mass spiel a speed spiel. These are all topics suggested by my co-workers at Slate. A bunch of them have read some things they'd like my opinion about, or to be very clear, they'd like me to talk into a microphone out of their direct earshot about. Maybe they're saving themselves from me just popping off in an open office environment. Here now, speed spiels. Hi, this is Greg Lavalley. I'm the director of technology at Slate. And here are my questions. What is a sport? Is golf a sport? And what about fishing? What about esports? Is there a line or is it just semantics? Here's what a sport is. A sport is an athletic endeavor, meaning it takes your body to play and to participate in the endeavor. It is a competition. Sometimes people get hung up on objectivity versus subjectivity. It's really quite easy to call an objective athletic endeavor a sport, but there are also subjective athletic endeavors, like of course ice skating is a sport, and I default to also common usage. So if ice skating and ballet dancing were currently at the same level in the public consciousness, there were no judges with scores attached to either, and someone started this idea, hey, let's attach judges' scores to ice dancing, I would say, well, no, don't make it a sport. But since it's already a sport that people think of as a sport, then it's a sport. Golf, of course it's a sport. I mean, if pistol shooting's a sport, golf's going to be a sport. Fishing, I don't know, depends what you catch. Finally, esports, I'm going to say it's not a sport because although you're technically moving the controllers with your fingers, that is the very minimum. Not every time you move something with your fingers, like, say, chess or poker, there's a little bit of chip moving. Not every time you move something with your fingers does it count as a sport. It would just take a special occasion, like say riflery or maybe darts. I would also go as far as to say that darts requires, you're, you're burning more calories at the end of darts than at the end of an eSport. Next question. Would you rather have spaghetti for hair or carrots for fingers? Now you realize you're talking to a guy with fingers and currently without hair. So it's 
Really not a tough choice. Mike, is that a perm? No, it's not a perm. I turned my spaghetti into Fuseli. Next question. Hello, this is Josh Levine, host of Hang Up and Listen. Mike, you might remember we used to do that show together. My question for you, Mike, is what do you think of Untuck It? I like it. I think the button-down shirt without a tie is our biggest fashion foible that in, I'm going to say, 70 years, we're going to look back and say, why, why, why did all these men's button up their shirts, not to put a tie over their buttons and walk around like they were, you know, weirdly trying to wear a suit that they weren't trying to wear. I say we go full tunic. I'm in favor of tunics. But until that time, to me, untuck it. Brands like it represent a uh, halfway point between the full tunic future and our current constrained button down present. Next question. Hi, Mike. This is Henry Grabar your colleague and a staff writer at Slate. Here are my questions. Are smartphones making us boring? I don't think so. I think that they have, how could a device that gives you access to every bit of information in the world make you boring? Uh, If you caught me in college when I was in the library, supposedly studying, but just wandering through the stacks, starting at uh, 810 in the Dewey Decimal System and working my way, I think down from there, I wasn't becoming a boring person. Maybe it wasn't, I wasn't the kind of person you'd want to interact with at that very moment. But access to information and access to knowledge is good. What I think they are is making us making us disassociate from the temporal world. And so how I see this is the way people space themselves on streets and also at Starbucks or Aubon Pan. Whenever I see someone on their phone trying to add milk to their coffee, they're taking up like three times as much room as they need to. Or when you see someone staring at their smartphone on the street, they're in the middle of the street, I guess, as a defense knowing that they might wander into something, so they give themselves a big buffer. So I think that the physical toll of the smartphone and the person who kind of has to walk and look at it defensively is much greater than the impact on conversation or the overall interestingness of society. Next question. Has tourism ruined New York? Oh, Henry, have kangaroos ruined Australia? Has the sea ruined the Maldives? Has God ruined church? Uh, The answers are no, no, and yes, respectively. No, tourism hasn't ruined New York. New York is a tourism mecca. Henry, Henry, you should know, grew up in New York, maybe at a time where fewer people wanted to come here. Tourism is great. We should be proud of our city. We're a pedestrian-friendly city. We actively seek to have people come visit us. We smartly call Times Square the crossroads of the world, smartly because, sure, it is. Let's put all the tourists there. I know if you have to go there, it's, it's freaking horrible. But I think tourism is really good because we're proud of our city, and there's still so much more of us than there is of them. I've been to Iceland. I worry about tourism there, not in Manhattan. Next question. Hi, I'm Erica Anderson. I'm Slate's regional director in the Southwest. Here are my questions. Are newspapers of the future nonprofits? I don't think so, because newspapers uh, are, are things that are joyous and are things that don't have to be nonprofits and are things that I think you could still make a buck at if maybe we taught our kids the value of newspapers or if the entire media industry, you know, started rethinking its business model. But the other point is why they shouldn't be nonprofits or why they're antithetical to the idea of nonprofits are they're supposed to every so often give you pause and cause disquiet and not make you necessarily feel good about yourself. I mean, I work for NPR. They were an effective nonprofit. But I think being nonprofit in a little tiny way 
clip the sales of NPR. You don't want to, you know, be broadly offensive. And newspapers should be allowed to be pretty offensive and not just in one direction. They should just stand for the truth in journalism, no matter where it takes them. And if you merge that with a nonprofit sensibility, it's a lot harder than, say, the City Ballet or the American Cancer Association. Next question. What would happen if the presidency was a draft? Make it like jury duty. You can't get out of it. I feel like I can't get out of it now. I mean, if it was a draft, I think I would go first pick Lincoln, second pick Washington, and then, you know, like as a value, a flyer on uh, an underrated character, Chester A. Arthur. All right, next question. I'm Megan Kallstrom. I'm the legal coordinator at Slate. In your opinion, what's the worst decision in Tony Ward's history? Well, I don't know worse decisions. Uh, They don't live with us like the Academy Award bad decisions do. Uh, From what I remember, Dustin Hoffman didn't get nominated for Death of a Salesman. And of course, I'm supposed to have strong opinions on these. It's not like I saw Dustin Hoffman on stage in Death of a Salesman. This year, To Kill a Mockingbird got nominated for lighting, sound, scenic design, costume, score, Jeff Daniels, Gideon Glick, Celia Keenan-Bolger, and direction. And yet somehow the play wasn't nominated? I know that it wasn't uh, a play that is of the moment and tickles the fanciest of woke sensibilities. But if you create a scaffolding and a structure that allows for that hall in all the other awards, it would seem that the play is doing something right. Great directing that worthless piece of shit. (laughs) What fine acting. You really inhabited these characters who have no value. But I would have to say the worst decision in all of Tony history was when Angela signed him up to be PTA president. I just don't think that's who Tony is. I mean, you got to ask Samantha, you got to ask Jonathan. I just, I really think that that was an egregious Tony decision. Next question. Hey, Mike, it's Virginia Heffernan from Trumpcast. So we were together on election night 2016, and we we both really tried to keep it together that night. And I appreciate you're usually cool when I see you around, but are you? I want to know how in these last 2.5 years you've been processing things emotionally. How does all this make you feel? And that's my question. That's a good question, Virginia. You always ask good questions. And people should listen to Trumpcast. Virginia Heffernan is a treasure. Um, It doesn't get to me on the level beyond policy and consternation over the lying. The lying and the unaccountability about the lying is just infuriating to me. I mean, this probably tells you who I am and what I value. But the fact that you can say... Uh, up is down and black is white and a cage is not a cage or maybe Obama invented the cage or my body is a cage. That drives me up the wall. I don't know emotionally. It's all in the realm of the intellect. Some people say, well, that's because you're not on the front lines. You're not a person who worries about deportation. You're not a trans person serving in the military. Yes, this this is the point with vulnerable populations. They are vulnerable. Are they not? But I would say it has been annoying. I think it has been uh, a huge um, indictment of anyone who voted for him or countenanced him. I mean, he is a uh, a pathetic shambles who is terrible at his job. And the fact that there are so many people still holding his water, it it just reflects so poorly upon them. I am interested in how it's going as a natural experiment. I really am. I'm also hopeful, since I'm deeply optimistic, that, you know, somehow that 
his presidency will be seen as the huge failure that it largely has. But then again, sometimes I run a little thought experiment and I said, let's say I was living in this society but didn't know any of the machinations about how the rules were made. This requires a little bit of magic. So you wouldn't know anything the president says, but you would feel the impact of the president's policies. By and large, I don't think it would be felt so differently than, say, a garden variety Republican. Now, you could say that's because you're not a vulnerable population. Yes, but most of us aren't. My advice is not to not pay attention. Obviously, it would not only hurt ratings, but not be who I am or who you are. But I do think if instead of his dishonest, aggressive, annoying, bordering on pathological process, if all we got was the product, it's a pretty bad product, but I don't know that it's an earth-shatteringly reality-reorienting product. It could be. I mean, if he were to get us into a war with North Korea, but it seems like he's even against war. So what I'm saying is if you only regarded the product of this fetid process, it would be bad, but it wouldn't be cry yourself to sleep at night bad. (laughs) What a country! And last question. Hi, I'm Dantea, and I'm a copy editor here at Slate. And my question is, what is your take on Gamergate? I'm so glad you asked. I have no opinion on Gamergate. There is nothing that gets people riled up that I know less about. I hope I get this one right when I say you shouldn't be sexist, right? And the guys who didn't like the women giving their opinions about video games, shut the hell up. Am I getting it right? If, if that is right, do I need to go beyond that? I think that that's where I stand with Gamergate. There are a few. I probably have stronger opinions on water in the West and certain species of Pokemon than I do Gamergate. All right. I got to just about everything I ever thought to or never thought to spiel about. I believe we are now even with gists and spiels, and that has made all the difference. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist, though Pierre is in a walking cast right now due to his preference for the hot new sneaker company, Unlace It. T.J. Raphael is senior producer of Just Podcast. She got a very, very fetching new haircut. It was a blowout, and now what once was Fusilli hair looks like Linguini hair. All right, if you subscribe to the Just newsletter, which you should, at slate.com slash news, every week we ask you a trivia question. And then when the newsletter comes with our wrap-up of what we said during the week, and some links of stuff that I and the producers have read, you'll also get the answer to that trivia question. So here's the question. You heard, you heard that caller talk about beer after a workout. I want to know, according to the World Health Organization beer statistics, what adjacent countries have the greatest disparity on the percentage of their alcohol intake that comes from beer? Here's what I mean. I think this is the second place answer. The country of Zambia, Of all the alcohol the Zambians drink, 36% of it is beer. But of all the alcohol Angolans drink, 70% of it is beer-based alcohol. All right, so that's a pretty big disparity, 34%. Find one that's bigger. Two neighboring countries that have a very big difference of opinion when it comes to how to get their alcohol in them. The gist. 
If the conservative opponent of magic mushrooms wanted to be accurate, he could have said, this city is becoming lawless. But if he wanted to be effective, he could say, you know, legal magic mushroom sounds good on paper. Wait until all of our speakers downtown are blaring the string cheese incident. What do you do then when Johnny Law's not around to save you, punk? Boom, Peru, Peru, do Peru. And thanks for listening.